All right, am I on? All right, good deal. Well, um, I told John this morning um, the text I was going to be preaching from, and that's Hebrews chapter 1. So if you want, go ahead and flip to Hebrews chapter 1. And I can tell that uh, John had put some thought into what, uh, what songs to sing, because I can't think of a better song that, that leads into the, the kinds of things I'm going to be saying tonight from this passage. Um, it just magnifies Jesus. Um, and so before I start, though, I just want to say um, what an honor it is to be, uh, to have an opportunity to, to, to speak from this pulpit in this church, um, the church that I grew up in, the church that I have always called home. And it's great to be done with seminary, finally, and to uh, be back home in back in the swing of McClenny life. And of course, uh, it's great to just be back with my family on a regular basis. And, um, and I can't thank you all enough as a church uh, for just uh, praying for me and supporting me financially. And I know that I couldn't have gotten through seminary without, without your support. And, um, and so it's a joy for me to be able to give back in whatever small way that I can. Um, and like Nathaniel said this morning, now you all get to see whether or not the support was worth it. So I thought that was good. So Hebrews chapter 1, if you have found it, I would ask for you to stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses tonight. These are the words of God. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you so much for the truth of this passage and the way that it magnifies your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray now that the words that I say and the sermon that I am getting ready to preach would follow suit and that your son would be magnified in what I say and magnified in every heart that is here tonight. I, I thank you for... Uh, everyone who is here tonight, and I pray that you would bless their willingness to be here and to sit under your word preached. Uh, Father, lead me now as I speak and open our hearts by your spirit to receive the truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The book of Hebrews is really fascinating um, in a lots of 
different ways. And when you compare it to the rest of the books that are in the New Testament, you find that it's really a very unique book. And one of the things that makes Hebrews unique is the original audience that it was first written to. These were um, Jewish converts to Christianity. These were people who had been previously committed to Judaism, but they had come to accept that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And uh, they, so they were Jews who had become Christians. That's basically what they were. And when you understand that this is who the book was first written to, it really sheds light on a lot of the passages that are in the book uh, where we see the writer warning, um, warning his readers against, uh, warning them about temptations to go back on their faith, to go back on their confession of Christ. Um, because these Jewish Christians probably had much easier lives before they became Christians. Um, Judaism was a religion that was uh, somewhat respected or at least tolerated in the ancient world. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't persecuted or anything like that for the most part. But now that these Jews are Christians, they've got to deal with the troubles and the fears of, of being persecuted or even the, the sadness of being rejected by their own family. And it's easy to see how someone like that would be tempted to go back to the old ways, to go back on what they said about Jesus being the Messiah. So the writer really labors to say, don't renounce Jesus. Don't turn your back on him. Stay faithful like your fathers stayed faithful. If you think ahead to Hebrews chapter 11, that famous passage of the hall of fame of the faithful, um, the faithful saints from the Old Testament. But then another thing that makes the book of Hebrews intriguing is that it's anonymous. So whoever it was that wrote this book apparently didn't feel the need to identify himself anywhere in the book. And so we are left wondering who wrote it. And, and so a lot of different ideas get thrown around now about who might have, who might have written this letter. Some people wonder if the author was Luke, the same Luke who wrote the the Gospel of Luke. Some people wonder if it might have been Apollos, because it was said of Apollos that he was mighty in the Scriptures. And certainly whoever it was that wrote Hebrews uh, has an impressive knowledge of Scripture. Some people think it might have been Barnabas, who was the companion of Paul. Some people wonder if maybe even a woman wrote Hebrews. Who knows? Now, for my own part, I'm very happy to believe that Paul was actually the one who wrote this letter. And I think very early in, in church history, a lot of Christians, uh, not every Christian, but I would say most Christians, uh, believed that this letter was written by Paul and received it as from, as from Paul. And I'm just, I'm just more than happy to, to, to go along with that. And I think there are good reasons to think that he did write it. But that's just my opinion. And so, uh, since not everybody agrees about who it was who, who wrote Hebrews, I'm just going to call him tonight what he uh, most commonly gets called, namely, the writer. Because I think we can all agree that understanding what God is saying to us in the text of Hebrews is far more important than, than knowing who it was that God used to, to put it down in writing. 
I think that's enough introduction, so let's jump right into uh, the text that we have before us tonight. Look with me at verse 1. God, who at sundry times, now sundry is just, just means various, at various times and in divers' manners, and if you add an E on the end of divers, you'll get diverse, which means the same thing. In diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, what's he saying there? At all different kinds of, uh, at all different times in the past and in all kinds of different ways, God spoke to his people in the Old Testament, and he spoke to them by the prophets. Now, we could go all over the place in the Old Testament and look at all the various ways that God spoke through the prophets, but I'll mention just a few examples here. The first person to be identified as a prophet in Scripture was actually Abraham. God called Abraham a prophet. Abraham was one of these prophets through whom God spoke. Now, sometimes we might get the idea when we read the Old Testament and we hear about God speaking to these, to these patriarchs that, um, that, that God spoke with some kind of booming voice from the clouds. And it was, it was the kind of thing probably that James Earl Jones would get hired to do in a movie or something like that. But really, the text usually doesn't say that it was, that it was anything like that. Um, sometimes God spoke to Abraham in dreams and visions, and sometimes in other types of mysterious ways that we're not quite sure what to make of. One really curious case is Genesis 18, where Abraham is sitting outside of his tent one day, and three men show up all of a sudden at his tent. And one of those men is apparently the Lord. He talks like he's the Lord, and Abraham talks to him like he's the Lord, or at least someone who speaks directly on behalf of the Lord. And the other two men that are with him are actually the two angels, seem to be, who, who go down to, to Sodom to warn Lot to get out of the city before, uh, before God destroys the city. And so here we, here we see God speaking to Abraham, apparently as a, as a relatively normal-looking person. And there's not much we can say there other than just what, just what the text seems to be saying. God makes himself known in whatever way he pleases. And then later on with the prophet Moses, think of all the ways that God spoke and made himself known through Moses. God spoke in the burning bush. He spoke very loudly through the plagues that he unleashed on Egypt. And he spoke through his rescue of the children of Israel and the parting of the Red Sea. Now, I joked a little bit earlier about the idea that, it, that God spoke with some kind of booming voice from the clouds. But make no mistake that God did sometimes reveal himself in ways that were spectacularly miraculous and plainly visible for everyone involved to see. So these are just... A few of the kinds of things that the writer of Hebrews has in mind here as he's talking to us about these various ways that God spoke to his people through the prophets. And it would go right on through the Old Testament with prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all the minor prophets. This was the way God spoke to his people in the past. But then, starting at verse 2, there's a contrast that's going to be made. Look with me at verse 2. 
God has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Now this is being presented as something that's far superior in quality to any other kind of revelation that God had given in the past. God revealed, um, God revealing himself through his son is better than any of those times in the Old Testament when God revealed himself. Because God didn't just send us another prophet, he sent his own son. I used to work as a security guard, believe it or not, in uh, Durham, North Carolina, and I worked in an office building downtown, and uh, sometimes we would have site inspections where some patrol officers would, would routinely come by and just make sure I wasn't sleeping or make sure I was, you know, doing my job. And um, it was all, usually always a very routine thing. And typically it was somebody who was more or less the same rank that I was. They just had different responsibilities. Or it might have been one of my supervisors who were directly over me. Um, but it was typically always a very routine thing. But I can remember one day, a guy showed up, and I didn't recognize him. I'd never seen him before. He had, he'd never come by before. And he didn't even have on a uniform or anything. He just kind of sh- showed up. And he, start, and he says he's there for, to do a site inspection. I'm like, okay, well. And he starts asking me um, questions, and more questions than I'm used to getting on, on site inspections. He asked me about a badge I have, if I'm getting it updated soon, it's about to expire, um, things like that. And what I eventually discovered was that this guy was the son of the president of the company. And all of a sudden, that routine site inspection took on more significance, uh, because here was, here was the son of the person who had the highest authority in the company. Here was a person who had a significant status that none of the other site inspectors had. Now, in the same way, it was certainly a big deal when God's son came into the world. Because here was a person far greater and far superior to any of the prophets who had come before And right here at the beginning of Hebrews, I think we're seeing what is really the major theme of the book. And it's this simple three-word truth. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. I can't think of any three words that better summarize the message of Hebrews. Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets is is what we're seeing here. Later on, he's greater than the angels. And then later on again, his new covenant is greater than the old covenant. Again and again and again throughout Hebrews, we're seeing the writer tell us that Jesus is better. And he tells us that here in verses 1 and 2. Notice that the writer refers to his own time period as the last days. In verse 2, he says, in these last days... The days that he is in. In these last days, God has spoken by his son. Now, what are we to make of that? You hear a lot of speculation about this kind of thing today. And a lot of times Christians want to know things like, are we living in the last days? And I think based on what I'm seeing here in this passage, the answer is clearly yes. We are living in the last days. And we have been for a very long time. In fact, there have been 2,000 years worth of last days since Hebrews was written. And for all I know, we have another 2,000 years worth of last days still ahead of us. Because the last days, as it's being used 
here by the writer, he's referring to this, this final era of human history. This, this is the last stage of God's redemptive plan and purposes for humanity. This period of time between the death and resurrection of Christ and his final uh, second coming. These are the last days. I think that's what that means. Still in verse 2. The Son has been appointed the heir of all things. God the Father has given all dominion and all authority to the Son. The Son owns everything. In fact, the writer goes on to say that the Son is the one by whom God made the worlds. And I really like the way uh, John expresses this at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1. He's talking, about, he's talking about the Son. He says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, everything that was made was made through the Son. And the implication there is that the Son does not belong in that category of things that were made. Because He was not made. The Son was not made. He was not created. He's not a creature of God the Father. Rather, He is the Creator. He is the agent of creation. Now, verse 3, still talking about the Son. Who being the brightness of His glory... That is the brightness of God's glory. The Son radiates the glory of the Father. And I think of that memorable passage that I'm sure you all know from from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has a glorious vision of the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And the seraphim are calling out to each other saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then what's really amazing is that John in John chapter 12, um, he says that when Isaiah saw that famous vision, he was seeing the glory of Jesus. The Son radiates the glory of the Father. Again in verse 3, still talking about the Son. He is the express image of God's person. Other translations will say at this point that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. And I think that's good because the Greek word that's used there is character. And I was struck when I saw it because it looks just like our English word character. This is the Greek word that our English word character comes from. And originally, it referred to a stamping tool. So think about, a, think about a stamp. It's got some sort of picture on it, a smiley face or, or a phrase or some words or something. And when you stamp it down onto some paper, what is it that you get? You get an exact copy of what's on the stamp. The sun perfectly represents the character of the Father. Jesus, so think about what you know about Jesus. Jesus' mercy and compassion for the lost perfectly reflects God the Father's mercy and compassion. And Jesus' fierce anger against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees or the defiling of the temple perfectly reflects God the Father's fierce anger against sin. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want, to know, you want to get to know God? Get to know Jesus. 
He's the express image of God's person. Again, verse 3, there are a lot of things in verse 3. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about that. That every moment of every hour of every day, the entire cosmos, the entire universe is being held together by the word of Jesus. He spoke the world into existence and he sustains the world at every moment by his word. Look with me one more time at verse 3 and we'll finish out through verse 4. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So once Jesus had finished his atoning work on the cross for our sins, once he had risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And that sitting down expressed that the work was that his work was entirely finished for now. And the name that he has inherited from the Father, that, that status that he has as the Son, that means that he is far superior to the angels. In fact, he's the one that angels worship, as it'll say later in this chapter. And if you haven't done the math yet, All of these things are telling us very clearly that Jesus is God. We believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons. So Jesus is not God the Father. The Son is distinct from the Father. He's a different divine person. But the Son is just as much God as the Father is. And so the Son is worthy of the same worship. And yet it is only one God that we worship. And that's called a mystery. (laughs) Now, we have walked through uh, this glorious text step by step. And I just want us to reflect now on some of the ways that we can take the truths that we see in this passage and apply them directly to the way that we think and live as Christians. And the first truth that I'd like us to spend some time reflecting on is probably the most basic truth and the one that shows up first in this this passage. And it's the, the basic truth that God speaks. God speaks. There's a New Testament scholar named Don Carson who is very fond of saying that God is a talking God. God talks. He is not a silent God He's a God who makes himself known to mankind. He didn't create the world only to stand back and let the world run on mechanically on its own and let human beings just try to feel their way through life and try to discern for themselves the right way to live. No, God spoke. He's made himself known to the world. And now obviously this sets him apart from false idols, doesn't it? An idol can't speak I love the way that the prophet Isaiah just utterly ridicules um, idol worship. He says, those who, those who make idols, what they'll do is they'll, they'll take some wood and they'll use part of that wood to, to make a fire with so they can get warm. And then they'll use the, other, they'll use the, the leftover wood and they'll make, it, they'll make an idol out of it. And they'll, they'll bow down and worship that idol and they'll, say, and they'll say, deliver me for you are my God. Idol can't deliver you. Idol can't even talk. It's just a piece of wood. But the living God, He speaks. He makes Himself known. 
And I can't think of a truth that is more directly relevant to our, cult, to our current cultural climate. I don't have to tell you that we live in a day and age that is very morally confused, to say the very least. One of the most controversial issues we face in our days is the issue of homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And we've gotten to a place as a society where florists who provide flower arrangements for weddings or bakers who make cakes for weddings might even be legally obligated to help celebrate something that God has said that he abominates. And that's just one issue. Consider the issue of abortion, which has been so deceitfully described as a women's rights issue. It's striking to me that Christians and other people who are pro-life, people uh, who want to protect the unborn, have spent great efforts over the years trying to establish that what we call a fetus in the womb is actually a human life. Because we felt sure that if we could establish that fact for people, then it would make them want to stop supporting abortion. Well, I think it turns out that we were naive in that. Because a couple of years ago, a woman named Mary Elizabeth Williams wrote a Salon.com article where she said that she's always believed that a fetus is a human life. And yet, that has never made her any less committed to the idea that abortion should be a woman's right. See, I think we underestimate how stubbornness um, or how stubborn wickedness can be. And our nation is filled with people, including lawmakers, who are utterly godless in their thinking. And in the midst of all this cultural decay, we've got the arrogance to um, to say that what this means is that we have progressed as a society when we call evil good and good evil. And God doesn't have pleasant things to say about people who do that. But Christians who want to be sought in light in a dark world and speak out against immorality and injustice, what is it that we so commonly hear from, from secular people who have a godless worldview? It's always something along the lines of, who are you to say? Who are you to say what is right and wrong for me? And you know what? They might have a point. They might have a point were it not for the fact that this is not a world that is the product of blind chance occurrences that took place over billions of years. And this is not a world where mankind has been left to himself to discern on his own what he thinks is right and wrong for him. This is not that kind of world. This is the world that God made. And not just some generic idea of God that even vaguely religious people might have. We're talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's whose world this is. And he spoke. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's spoken to us most loudly and most clearly by his Son, God speaks. God makes himself known, and he makes his will known to mankind. 
And I think if we lose sight of that fact, we lose any true foundation uh, for, for speaking truth into our culture in its current state and seeking to, to transform culture. God speaks. Remember that. The second truth that I'd like for us to reflect on from this passage in Hebrews is just the supremacy of the Son, or we might say the sovereignty of Jesus, or the preeminence of Christ, to use a phrase that that Paul will use in, in Colossians. Jesus has inherited all things from God the Father. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He upholds the universe at every moment by the word of his power. Listen to the way Paul says it in Colossians. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Listen, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sounds a lot like Hebrews 1, doesn't it? Now, if Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things, then certainly he owns all things, and he rules all things. This includes world governments and every world leader, whether we're talking about Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or someone else with a funny name or, or Barack Obama. All of them are subject to Jesus. Whether they acknowledge him as king or not, they are subject to him. There was a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper in the, 18, the early 1900s. And Abraham Kuyper made a very famous statement that I think it would be good for every Christian to internalize, to get into their bones. Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Did you get that? It's kind of oddly worded. I'll read it again. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. In other words, go find you a square inch somewhere in this world that we live in. Go find a square inch somewhere in the universe. And it doesn't matter which square inch you find, you will be looking at the territory of Jesus. Nothing's outside of his rule. There is no neutral ground anywhere in the universe. No neutral ground. All of it belongs to Jesus. And there's a John Piper clip on YouTube that I think would be well worth your time. You can find it if you just search John Piper, Supremacy of Christ. John Piper, Supremacy of Christ. And it should be one of the first things that, that, that show up. It's about a four and a half minute clip. And if you've ever heard that, that famous sermon clip by uh, S.M. Lockridge that's called That's My King, it's very popular. This, this one from John Piper uh, kind of has the same flavor to it. But, but what John Piper does is based on text like the one we've looked at tonight from Hebrews 1 and other texts like it, um, 
he begins to list off dozens of, of spheres of life that, that Christ is king over. And he includes things like education and politics and the entertainment world. These are things that sometimes we don't often think of as being related uh, to Jesus. And, but he's able to go on and on and on because Christ is sovereign over every sphere of human life. And he really just brings that out in a powerful way. There's, really, there's one part that I really, really like where he, where he says that Christ is sovereign over every academic university no matter what they teach. That's powerful. It's a really powerful clip, and I uh, commend it to you. I think it's the perfect kind of just strong biblical truth to begin your day with. Do you go to work? When you go to work, do you go with an understanding of how the work that you do intersects with your Christianity? How it relates to your total commitment to the Lord Jesus in all, that, in all that you do. How it relates to His supremacy and His sovereignty over all things. Younger people, if you're a college student, do you think about your education in terms of how it relates to Jesus? And I'm not talking here about just seminary kinds of degrees. I got my bachelor's degree in Christian studies from Southeastern in North Carolina. Christian studies, but in all reality, it doesn't matter what field you're studying in. If you are a Christian, it's all Christian studies. Parents, as your children are educated, whether that's at home or through another institution, are you helping them to see that everything we learn is ultimately about Jesus and for his glory? Colossians says this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. He's where all knowledge ultimately comes from. We learn to read because it makes so many treasures of wisdom and knowledge available to us. First and foremost, in God's word itself, which we must read, but also in in, uh, other books, which, which we learn things from. We learn about mathematics so that we can understand the order with which Jesus has created the world. And so that we can think precisely with the minds that he's given us. And so that we can utilize the order that creation is created in. We can utilize that order in order to do good. I think that in our day, the field of science has become something like a modern-day Tower of Babel. If you recall at the Tower of Babel, what was, what was happening there? Men were building a tower that would reach to the heavens and show how great they are. And one of the things I love about that, that narrative is that it, it, it says, God came down to see what, what these puny, puny little men were doing. He had to come down and see what they were doing. And I can just imagine God saying, oh, this is so precious. Look at them. <laughs> He got him a big old tower. Yeah. Human pride can be so silly. Yeah, <laughs> but nowadays it seems like many people look at science in a similar way. And it's like they're under the impression that the more we know about the world through science, the less and less need there is for God, which is completely wrongheaded. 
The more we know about science, the more we marvel at God and the world that he made. And the more we can utilize the resources of this world that he has created to do good. So the point is this. Everything that we involve ourselves with in this life is to be connected and understood in terms of our Christian faith. Because Jesus is supreme over all things, and he owns all things. And the last thing, by way of application, I want to point out here is, um, it's related to this idea of the supremacy of the Son, is we must realize and know in our hearts that Jesus is better than anything that you and I might be looking to to give us happiness and fulfillment. That he is better. For the original audience of Hebrews, this would have been that old Jewish way of thinking. The old ways that had become so familiar. They had easier lives. Things were more comfortable for them. Things were better for them. So they thought. But the writer really wants them to see uh, and to know that Jesus is far better than any of those things. Now, you and I probably look to different things to give us happiness and fulfillment. I can remember years ago watching American Idol, and I know this is kind of lame now, but um, I can remember watching American Idol and thinking, man, I wish I were famous. It would be so cool to be famous, to go on a show like American Idol to where where you kind of start from nothing and nobody knows who you are to you're just a star. And I mean, I mean, I think that's a pretty, ba- I mean, that's a pretty common human desire. Um, and really, it's it's most basically just the desire to be known. We want to be known by people, and we get the idea that if we're known and appreciated by lots of people in this world, it's it's going to give us happiness and fulfillment. But I think that the the Christian corrective to that faulty way of thinking is for us to get a hold of and realize who it is that we are actually known by. Christian, you are known by the risen Lord of heaven and earth, who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, who has inherited all things and sustains all things at every moment by the word of his power. And if I know that, How in the world could I ever be consumed with this desire to be known by people? I'm known and loved and cherished by the most famous of all persons. The most glorious angels in heaven adore and worship this Jesus. He's what they talk about night and day. There's a song by Keith and Kristen Getty that I love the title of it. Jesus, joy of the highest heaven. He's their joy. And if you're a Christian, then this is the Jesus that you are known by. Be amazed at that fact. Let it absolutely transform the way that you think and live. He's far better than anything that we might be looking to to give us happiness and fulfillment. And that's what I have for you tonight. And I'm going to pray in a few moments. And then we're going to have a time of response. Musicians, y'all can go ahead and, and come up on stage if you like.
If you're here tonight and you're not a believer, I would love to introduce you to this person that I've been talking so much about tonight. He's an amazing person. He's the son of God who came to earth 2,000 years ago, and he died on a cross as a sin sacrifice for sinners, and he rose again from the dead, and that showed that he defeated death, and death had no power over him. And he went back into heaven, and he's at the right hand of God, and he stands ready to give eternal life to anyone who will repent of their sins and trust themselves to him completely for salvation. That's who he is. And I know that's a lot to take in if, if you've never heard this kind of thing. But if you're, um, if you're here tonight and, and you want to know more about that, please come talk with me during this, this, this time of response or after the service if you feel more comfortable with that. But I, I imagine that most people under the sound of my voice tonight are Christians. And so I hope that what has happened is that you've been Um, reminded that you have seen in a fresh way how glorious Jesus is and how absolute his authority is in this world, how sovereign and supreme he is over all things. I hope that 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 has been seen in a fresh way. And so this time of response now is just just a time for us to reflect on the things that we have have heard tonight. And so the the front steps are open. Um, This is... It's... it's, um, I mean, we do this a lot. You know how it goes. Um, so uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 1. And thank you for the truths that, that we've seen from it. Father, thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. Thank you for what you've accomplished for us through him. Thank you for speaking into this world. Thank you for not leaving us on our own on this planet to search and find our way ourselves. Thank you for speaking to us, for making yourself known. We pray that uh, as we uh, finish out our service tonight uh, and as we go back to our lives this week, that we would always be mindful of Jesus. We would always be mindful of the ways in which we can glorify Him through our work, through our schooling, through our parenting, through our relationships with our family, through every sphere and aspect of our lives. Jesus, you deserve all the glory. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Let's respond to God. Stand as we sing. To fall upon their knees You're the one who welcomes sinners And you open blinded eyes You restored the broken hearted And you brought the dead to life Forgetting all our sins You remember all your promises 
us do that. <laughs> My monitor I went dead, that. so I had no idea what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, need to do. Yeah. I had no idea. I was just trying to go with oh. what y'all were doing. I love that song. Yeah. That song was good. Well, look here. Yeah, the 24th is definitely up for me. But.